I'm just going to open up with some prayer, and then I'll talk about the disciplines. And we have Chris Evans, who's going to teach us about the home this morning. So this is a really good lesson. So I'm glad you guys are here to hear it. Dear Lord God, we love you. We thank you for just the way that you sent your son and gave us a gift that we don't deserve, Lord. But now we can sit here and and come together around your word and our eyes are open. Our hearts are eager to learn and to grow. And that's only because of your grace, Lord, and because of your work in our lives. So we're so thankful and we pray that you will just be here with us this morning, that you will be with Chris as she speaks, give her clarity of words, and may, may they be your words, Lord, and may they just penetrate our hearts and change our lives because of the time we spend together this morning. In your precious son's name we pray, amen. Um, so I'm just going to read through the disciplines, so if you guys want to look at them and follow along, that'd be great. Um, our purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live transformed, gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So I was thinking about that and wondering, so why do women in the church need to be equipped and encouraged? And it doesn't take long before you think about all the ways that we are bombarded with worldly wisdom just in one day. And it's pretty overwhelming when you think about that. And, and is it too much to ask us to take a few, one hour or two, exposing ourselves to the way God thinks? <laughs> so that, that just, when I think about it that way, it made me really want to be diligent to spend time in God's word. Um, so then we have the disciplines. Discipline one is the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So this is the foundation of what we've been learning about, and it's kind of where the fuel and the momentum happens to get into D1 and D2, I mean, to D2 and D3, sorry. <laughs> so um, we can't bring ourselves to a place or we can't bring others to a place where we haven't already been. And um, I don't know if you guys were able to see the little resource that Chris shared with us, but and she might be able to add more that I might leave out because she's actually used this um, since Jacob taught. It kind of spurred her on. And she said that she really, it's been a really good tool for her to think through and then even as she does one day, she'll look back at the day before when she starts, and that kind of helps her get her heart prepared to worship. And she says it, it, it just goes faster into the next time that she's with the Lord. That makes sense. Because she can see the progress of her heart, that it's her heart's made in that day, and how God has revealed himself, helps her to worship him, have a place to start to worship him so anyway however you guys choose to use that is great we just wanted to make it available to you um, as a way to use during your worship time with the lord so i um as i was working through my time in the word i read through lamentations this week and i just saw how it helped me think about Discipline one and dis or discipline two and discipline three. So I'm just going to read those and then we'll read some from Lamentations. Discipline two is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with their heart fixed on God and His Word. And then discipline three is ministry, with the heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. The faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So I, I was reading in Lamentations, and it's, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book, but it's kind of a poetic form of 
just the destruction of Jerusalem and all that they went through in the siege and the downfall and everything. But right in the middle of it in chapter 3 is like a turning um, in the author's thinking. So I just thought we could read together from chapter 3 in Lamentations. It's right after Jeremiah. And you, you, to get an idea of how low, because the author is obviously there and he's, he's experiencing it himself, so he's part of what's going on. Some people say that Jeremiah is the author, but that's not really a known fact, so um, I'll just say the author. But in, in verse 16, he says, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. So he's pretty low. That's like at the bottom. <laughs> he has no hope in the midst of this, um, all of this trial that's gone on. I can't even imagine what it would have been like, but. And then it says in verse 21, but this I, re I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And then skip down to verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he has caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. So I just made a couple of observances from that. <clears throat> Because I was thinking that when we're called to be in our homes and going out from our homes, we are to have a concern for those in our homes and, and to minister to them with our heart fixed on God and his word. So I just thought it was neat to see how this author, like the ministry that God gave him, I don't know if it was to his home too, but it was definitely to Israel, um, a bigger group. But he had to help them through this big trial, you know, and that's often what we have to do with those in our homes. God uses trials in our life so that we're not, they're not going to be without trials, so we need to be ready to help them in the midst of their trials. And I, so I made some observances from this passage that um, it wasn't until the author remembered truth about who God was and he could get away from his trial and look up. And so he looked up and he remembered God's character and then his hope was renewed. He remembered God's steadfast love and his mercies, his faithfulness. He remembered the truth that that God was punishing their sin, but he wasn't trying to destroy them you know he wanted to he wanted them to be reconciled to him and to be um, have their hope renewed um, he he remembered that God is good to those who wait for him and that the yoke that he must bear was good for turning him away from his sin and to be saved and he he also saw that um, remembered that God does not willingly afflict and grieve his children, that that God God's heart is breaking while he's watching his children suffer. So I don't know, that if someone wanted to help me through a trial, that's what I would want them to remind me of, <laughs> those things about God. So hopefully that encourages you like it has me um, to re be ready. That's what we do in our as we're in shepherding our own hearts, we're filling our minds with those truths so that we can pour them out into others' lives and 
while we're reminding ourselves, right? <laughs> so thank you, and I'm going to just let Chris start her lesson, which is so um, applicable to all of our homes, whether we have children or roommates or family that's not really living in our house. Any, any stage of life, you guys will be blessed. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Dina. Uh, that's probably the third time that, fourth time I've heard uh, Lamentations 3 this week. So it's just, I, I just love it. it. It is such, it's just, there's so much encouragement to it and so helpful, such a helpful reminder when we are in a trial. And as soon as I begin to feel overwhelmed, I know what I need to remind myself of. And that's the truth that God is faithful. So. All right, well, this morning we're going to talk about discipline two. We're going to talk about the home. And uh, the way we're going to do that is we're going to take a step back and we're going to take a really broad look at what God has to say about the importance of the household. So to do that, we're going to survey both the Old Testament and the New Testaments. And as we do, I think we'll all find, once again, um, what we've already seen so far this year, and that is that there is a strong connection between Discipline 1 and Discipline 2. So we must be women who are concerned with our hearts before the Lord and understand the impact that it makes in our homes. Our hearts must be in alignment with what God has to say about the household so that we have the right kind of impact there. So often in scripture, we see how just one person can make a dramatic, um, have a dramatic influence in their home for good or for evil, as we're gonna see this morning. The one thing that we need to come away with this morning is that household relationships are important to God. And if they're important to him, then we must make sure that we have the right view of the household and that we place the same importance on the household as God does. So as we look at his word this morning, we're going to start in the Old Testament and we're going to work our way forward into the New Testament. So if you've been around Grace Bible Church for any amount of time, you know that we do that because God, that's how God gradually unfolds um, his revelation to us. So we work from the Old Testament to the New in order to get a full sense of God's heart. So as you look at your outline this morning, you're going to see that we're going to look at nine categories to help us see God's heart for the household. So because of time, there's a lot on there. There's a lot we're going to cover. Some of those passages we'll actually stop and take a look at, and then others of them, um, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview, and then hopefully you'll go back and look at them on your own. So let's go ahead and look at that first category on your outline. And we're going to take the most time this morning looking at, at this particular one. So let's start by looking at Exodus 20. Um, we're going to look at verse 12. So this is in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And we know that the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And in them, God was providing regulations for Israel. So as we look at this verse, we need to remember that as Christians, we're not under the Mosaic law. Okay, We don't obey the command to honor father and mother because it's in the Ten Commandments, but we do obey it because Jesus taught it in Matthew 15. And also we need to remember that when we see a promise in the Old Testament, most often it is given to Israel, not to Christians unless it's repeated again in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't any value for us in looking at the Mosaic law. It does have value because it reveals to us God's heart. All of Scripture is revelation. All of Scripture, we're told, is profitable. It provides for us examples from which we can learn, and it shows us the character of God. So when we see a promise in the Old Testament that was made, say, for example, to Joshua, we don't look at that promise as if it was made to us, but we are reminded that God keeps his promises, and that should affect the way that we trust him. And when we see a command in the Old Testament, that command may or may not be um, for the church, for us individually, but it does help us to see the character of God, 
and it gives us a glimpse into his holiness. And so the Old Testament does have an important place for us as New Testament believers. We want to obey God, right? As New Testament believers, we want to obey God, but we want to obey him for the right reasons. Under Christ, we exalt Christ because he's greater than the Mosaic law. So let's go ahead and keeping that in mind, look at Exodus 20. So verse 12 is the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So here God is speaking of the land that he promised to Israel. Now the first four commandments are concerned with Israel's relationship with God. Okay, how they were to relate to him rightly. Well, that's what discipline one is all about. And then we see a turn, a different focus in the remaining commandments. They're horizontal, which means they focus on relationships with people. And they begin, I think it's interesting, with a focus specifically on household relationships. So he starts with honor your father and your mother. So the first horizontal relationship that God addresses is a relationship within the home and very specifically with the parent-child relationship, the way children are to respond to their parents. They're to show them honor. Then verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. So here we see that God is focused on the husband-wife relationship in the home. And then verse 17 God is concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's household. When he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So God's concern for the household is very clear in the Ten Commandments. And therefore, Israel was to be concerned that they were thinking rightly in their household. They were to focus on being content in their household and to think rightly about one an about another person's household. So God is looking for honor, respect, and protection in the household. Okay, let's turn to De Deuteronomy 4. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 10. So while you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background. This is where Moses, where Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of their bondage there. <clears throat> but they rebelled and they would not take possession of the land that God, had, that God was giving them. And so they wandered through the desert for 40 years. And because of that rebellion, they were not allowed to go into the land until the generation that rebelled died off. So, now picking up in Deuteronomy 4, this is 40 years later, and Moses is talking to their children who are now grown, who were originally told to honor their parents. So this is Moses at the end of his life, and he is reteaching the law before they enter into the land, the promised land. And he says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. Why? So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. So this, we could say, is discipline one spelled out for Israel. Now watch how, how the verse ends. The very next thing he says is, make them known to your sons and your grandsons. That's discipline two. You see how God ties the heart to the home. And then in verse 10, he says, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth. Again, that should remind us of discipline one and that they may teach their children. There's discipline two. So the responsibility for the Israelite household was for the parents to make known to their children what God did in redeeming them out of Egypt. So again, we see God's heart here. He wanted them to care for their own hearts with his word and to teach their children. Okay, let's go to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So again, God connects love for him with his word. It's discipline one. And what's the very next thing that we read? Okay, we see that he again ties the heart to the household. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So God determined that there would be an inseparable connection between what Israel did with their own heart and what they did with their family. You see God's heart for the household. One cannot say that they are concerned about their heart and then not be as concerned as God is about their household. God is saying your household, Israel, is to be dominated by my concern, uh, sorry, by your concern for my word. Um, and then there is to be that inseparable connection between love the Lord your God with all your heart and teach them to your children. So God wanted Israel to impress his words on their own hearts and on the hearts of the next generation. How? By living them out on a daily basis, by talking about them, by thinking about them. They were to be consistently on their minds and in their hearts. So the older generation was to continually model their complete loyalty to God in every way possible. Okay, so let's turn to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. So we've just seen the influence that our heart has on our home. Next, we're going to see that that influence flows both ways, not just from our heart to our home, but also from our home to our heart. Look at verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, and then he lists seven nations that are, are greater and stronger than them. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Well, what did we see last time in Solomon when Jacob came and taught us? From Proverbs 4.23, we saw what that did, right? Verse 4 says, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. And then he says in verse 5 that all of their idolatry was to be destroyed because as verse 6 remind, was to remind them, they were to be a holy people to the Lord their God. So God is telling them that there must be no household in Israel where a worshiper of Yahweh marries a foreigner who worships other gods. God makes it very clear the kind of household that he desires. And therefore, this kind of idolatrous household was not to exist in Israel. Why? Because idolatry in the home turns hearts away from worshiping God. So the burden in Israel was on the fathers and the mothers to not allow their children into this kind of marriage. They were to teach them in such a way that their children, the next generation, would want to follow God, that they would not want to abandon him. And a part of that meant that they were not to marry people who worshipped other gods, who followed after other gods. So it goes both ways. Just as our heart influences and impacts our home, what goes on in our home also impacts our hearts. So there's a great warning for us here to be careful of what we allow into our household and to remember the influence and the impact that those things will have there. I think it's important when we read a passage like this that we stop and evaluate 
If you're married, talk to your husband about the things that you allow in to influence your home. We must be careful that we protect our children from harmful influences. Okay, I'm going to encourage you to read Psalm 78, 1 through 8 on your own, um, it, because there you'll see another example of the inseparable connection between what we do with our hearts and the impact that it makes on our own children and on the generations that follow. So let's go ahead and turn to the New Testament. We're going to look at Ephesians 6, and we'll see again that God has high expectations for family relationships. He holds the household relationship in very high regard. So you see in, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 in your outline, that this is a repeat of the fifth commandment, which we already looked at, but now it is brought under the authority of Christ for the church. This is part of his instruction for believers and for our household relationships. So he says, children are to obey their parents. This shows us, again, God's concern for the household. And then in verse 4, he addresses the parents when he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so parents are to be careful so as not to be frustrating their, their children. So again, we see God demonstrating now in the New Testament that household relationships matter to him. Next on your outline, you'll see 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. We don't have time to turn there this morning. But in this passage, Paul is instructing Timothy regarding elder qualifications. And in this, we see that the household is so important to God that in order to be qualified to be an overseer of the church, a man must manage his own household well and set an example for the rest of the body. Verses 2 and 3 tells us what kind of a character the elder is to possess and the heart that he must have toward God in his word. And then verse 4 tells us that he must be one who manages his own household well. How? By keeping his children under control and with all dignity. Because it tells us if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So God's design for the church is to have men leading whose hearts have been influenced by the word of God and whose priority it is to oversee their household relationships well. So the next passage you see in our outline is Titus 2, 3 through 5. We clearly saw when Sarah came in and taught a whole lesson on this passage that a woman's faithfulness in her household is of great significance in the gospel mission. As a woman who cares for her own heart and is faithful in her household relationships, it impacts the way others speak about God's word. So it is undeniable as we read God's word that for Israel and for the church, that God has high expectations for family relationships, that he is concerned about the home. And if God is concerned about the household, then we must have that same concern. Okay, we're going to move a little bit more quickly through the rest of the lesson. Let's go ahead and look at number two on our outline. It's an Old Testament woman who grasped God's heart for the household. Turn to the book of Ruth. So Ruth's life took place during the time when there was no king in Israel. It was when the judges ruled. The book of Judges, which is right before Ruth, ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that was the spiritual climate. There was no submission to God, no submission to authority. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And yet, in the middle of this dark period of history, Ruth's life was a refreshing exception to that. In Ruth 1, we find a man named Elimelech who takes his wife Naomi and his sons and he moves to Moab because of a famine in Israel. Then Elimelech dies and after that his sons marry Moabite women. 
and then his sons died. So Naomi heard that the famine was over in Israel, and so she goes back to her home. She encouraged her Moabite daughters-in-law to stay in Moab with their own people, their own culture. One of them, Orpah, agrees, but Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. Again, Naomi urges her to go back, like her sister-in-law did, back to her people and back to her Moabite gods. But Ruth responds with a bold declaration of faith, and we see that in verse 16. It says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. So Ruth declares that Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true God, is her God. Now listen to what she says next. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. So Ruth is prepared to leave her culture, her land, and her language to stay with Naomi. Now think about that. She wanted to leave everything that she knew and go to be with her mother-in-law. Now why would she do that? Because in Ruth's mind, to have Yahweh as her God meant being devoted to her family. And for her, that meant her mother-in-law. Ruth is a beautiful role model of a woman whose heart was for God first and she demonstrated that by being devoted to her mother-in-law, the same mother-in-law who encouraged her to stay in Moab with her Moabite gods and to find a husband there, the mother-in-law who by her own admission was a bitter woman. You see that in verse 20, Naomi returned to her home in Bethlehem and the other women say, is this Naomi? And Naomi's response is, do not call me Naomi, which meant pleasant. Call me Mara, which which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. So Naomi isn't just bitter, she is bitter at God. But this proud, bitter woman is the family that Ruth chooses to love. Even though she's a foreigner and she had no idea what the future would bring to her there, but her love for God drove her to love Naomi because she grasped God's heart for the household. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number three on your outline, Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the household. I think sometimes observing other people's failures can often be a helpful warning to us. So I'm going to encourage you to read about the account of Eli on, um, on your own, the sons in 1 Samuel. But I'm just going to make a few observations from the chapter. So Samuel is the son of Hannah. You remember that Hannah wept bitterly before the Lord, pleading with him to give her a child. And God heard and answered her prayer. So she promised to dedicate Samuel to the temple, and he lived there with Eli the priest. Eli had grown sons, but Eli failed as a spiritual leader and as a father. And God held him accountable because it was more important for Eli to please his sons than to honor God. But I want us to take note of that because with so much emphasis on household relationships, it's important for us to remember that it is not God's desire for us that we would set our household relationships so high that we would honor our family over him, but rather that we would place the proper weight as God does on those relationships, that we would grasp his heart for the family. Okay, let's turn to 1 Kings 21. So after looking at Ruth, who understood God's heart for the home, we're now going to look at a couple of women who did not. Rather, they rejected God's heart for the home. We're going to look at Jezebel and Athaliah. So as you're turning to 1 Kings, let me just give you a little bit of context. God made David king over all of Israel, all 12 tribes, after the death of Saul. 
David was then considered was then succeeded by his, by his son Solomon as king, who also was king over all of the tribes. But after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now the southern kingdom is most often referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom is Israel. And it was plagued by one bad king after another. So about 75 years after the death of Solomon, King Ahab was um, the king of the northern kingdom, and he married Jezebel. So she was the daughter of a foreign king. What did God say about that? Right? It's exactly what was forbidden in Deuteronomy 7. Nevertheless, Ahab married Jezebel, and she was brought to be uh, to Israel to be queen, and with her she brought her false gods and her false idolatrous worship, thus provoking God. So already we see that this was not a man or a woman who understood God's heart for the household. In 1 Kings 21, 4 and 5, we read about a man, Naboth, who would not sell Ahab, Jezebel's husband, her, um, his vineyard. Ahab was resentful, he was angry over that, and so his wife Jezebel came up with an evil plan to get the men of the city to kill Naboth so that Ahab could steal his vineyard. So why is that important? Because we need to remember that in Israel the land was supposed to be handed down from one generation to the next. That was God's plan. But Jezebel had no regard for God's ways, no regard for family or for the home. She was willing to have someone murdered in order to get his land and rob his family of their inheritance. In verse Kings 25, um, for in verse, verse 25 of 1 Kings, it says this about Ahab after this incident says, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Well, that is quite an indictment. Let's just stop and think about the influence of Jezebel. This one woman was responsible for Baal worship in Israel, for persecution of, the, of God's prophets, the murder of Naboth, the robbery of a family's inheritance, and the inciting of a king to do evil. This woman was using and abusing her influence in her home for evil. And sadly, that's not the end. Let's look at the next passage, 2 Kings 8. Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter, Athaliah. Now, Athaliah married Jeroboam, who is a king in the southern kingdom. So remember, her father is a king in the northern kingdom. And then sadly, Jezebel's wicked influence spread through his daughter into the southern kingdom. How? 2 Kings 8.18 says, Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his wife, Athaliah. So now we see a husband doing evil because of his wife, who had been influenced by her mother. Now, what kind of evil did he do? Second Chronicles 21.4 tells us that when he had taken over the kingdom of his father, he killed all of his brothers. Then Jeroboam and Athaliah had a son named Ahaziah. And he also did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his connection with his family, with his mother's family. So, so far, we've seen Jezebel's evil influence on Ahab, the king of Israel. Her disregard for Naboth and his family. And we saw that that evil influence passed on to her daughter, Athaliah, who then had an evil influence on her husband, the king of Judah. And now we see that it extended to Athaliah's son as well. So we see a corrupted husband, murder, robbery, corrupted children, a man murdering his own brothers, 
more corruption of, a hus of husband and children. This is the exact opposite of God's heart for household relationships. God designed the home to be a place where his name is declared, where his mighty works are remembered, where they're taught and praised, where one generation exhorts the next generation to love God and to obey him. But this family rejected anything that had to do with God's heart for the household. And the evil influence continued. 2 Kings 10 tells us that Athaliah's son, King Ahaziah, was killed. And then in 2 Kings 11, 1, we're told that when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Do you understand what this is saying? This grandmother murdered all of her grandchildren. Yeah, you're like, what? Why? So she could rule. She wanted the throne. So think about this. God warned against intermarrying, and his warning was not heeded. Ahab invited this right into his household because of his disobedience. So this begs the question, what are we allowing into our homes? We must be careful of the kind of influence that we allow in. If we are careless, it reveals a heart problem, a heart that is not concerned as God is about our household. We must plead with God for a, a heart that aligns with God's heart for the household remembering that we do have an impact in our household. The question is, what kind of an impact will we have? Okay, let's go ahead and move on. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 8 and, verse, and look at verse 10. So as you're turning there, again, just a little bit of context. We're back on the plains of Moab, where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. So this is just 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt. And this is Moses warning to the Israelites. In verse 10, he says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandment and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. So he's telling Israel, when you are enjoying the blessings of God and things are going well, beware. He's giving them a stern warning. Moses is saying that is the time that you need to be concerned because that is when you will be tempted to forget God. Now, he's not talking about forgetting that God exists, but what does it tell us? Okay, rather, they'll live as if they don't by being disobedient. Verse 12 says, Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have build, built good homes and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, and here's the warning, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God's warning them ahead of time that the household that God is, is giving them, where his blessing, where he is blessing them so richly, is where they needed to be aware of the danger that they were in. They needed to guard against pride, to guard against forgetting who their provider was and what he has done for them. And we also must be aware of this danger and guard our hearts against the very same thing. We must guard against pride about forgetting all that God has done. And I think especially when things are going well in our household. Now, thankfully, in Christ, 
our homes can be a platform for impacting everyone who lives there with the gospel. Regardless of the season of life that we're in, regardless of our circumstances, prosperity, or hardship, but we must not forget his provision, the provision of our highest treasure, Christ himself. We don't want to forget God in our own households. Okay, let's go ahead and look at number five on the outline, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. Now, we're not going to look at Acts 10 this morning, but I really encourage you to read about Cornelius on your own, where through one man, an entire household was impacted by the gospel because of one heart for God. But we are going to look at the second one on your outline, Acts 16, 11 through 14. So this is where Paul is on his second missionary journey. We find Paul and Silas traveling from city to city in Europe and in Asia, strengthening the churches. And they came to Philippi. <coughs> and this is where we read about Lydia. Acts 16, 13 through 14 says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. Okay, there wasn't a, there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. And so um, they looked for a place of prayer. And it says, We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assemb assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So Lydia was a woman who believed in the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel. She was a worshiper of Yahweh. So she was an Old Testament believer. And God divinely brought Paul and Silas to her where she and others were gathered for prayer. And it tells us in verse 14 that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. And what would Paul have spoken to her? What do you think? The gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus. So Lydia already was a she believed that the Messiah would come. She was waiting for him to come. And we see that God opened her eyes and her faith was transformed from Messiah anticipating faith to knowing that Jesus was the Messiah. So as a believer in God, she already understood the concern she was to have for her household. She would have known that from the scriptures. But we see, we see that she had a connection to her household and that they were with her right there when Paul spoke to her. We're told in verse 15 that she and her household had been baptized. So we see Lydia's concern from the beginning for her household and the impact that her faith had there. God chose to save her and her entire household that was with her. Let's look down to verse 22. We'll see the same thing in the, with the Philippian jailer. So sometime later, Paul and Silas are thrown into jail because of a big uprising in Philippi. They had received severe beatings, and how do we find them? They're praying. They're worshiping. Can you imagine the impact that that must have had on the, on the jailer there? Then there was an earthquake. You're all familiar with, this, with uh, what happens. The doors are opened, and the prisoners' chains come loose. The jailer just assumed that everyone had escaped, and if that had been true, that would have meant that he actually would have been executed for failing his duties as a jailer. And so he was about to kill himself when Paul called out to assure him. He says, don't do yourself harm. We're all here. And then we see in verse 30 that the jailer asks them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So this jailer brought them, brought Paul and Silas, right into his household. And so his household heard the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? And that night, an entire household was changed forever. So we see the impact that this jailer, just one person, had on his household. What an encouragement that is to us. And we know that God's the one who saves, 
right? But we never know how God might choose to use us in that process. So we want to be encouraged there. All right, let's go ahead and move on to number six on the outline. The attack on the home. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3, 1. <coughs> the household is so important to God. If there is this kind of link between our heart and the household and what God wants to accomplish, then we shouldn't be surprised that the home is also a place of attack by the enemy. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.1 says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Again, we see a concern for the household relationships. And then we see a further description of the kind of people that there, that there will be. And verse 5 gives the warning to avoid such men as these. Why? Because verse 6 says, For among them are those who enter into households. And what do they do in those households? They captivate weak women. They're weak because they are weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. These women, who verse 7 tells us, are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So these women didn't know how the word of God, how the gospel was to address their sin. Therefore, they're still weighed down by their sins. They're weak and susceptible. They had some knowledge, but it didn't impact them on a heart level. So they were vulnerable to attack. Ladies, this is a sober warning for us. We have to be vigilant because attacks on the, against the Christian home often come disguised. They can often look benign, harmless. And so again, we need to ask ourselves who or what might we be allowing to creep into our homes in our day, in our generation. Our culture has a very strong, loud voice. It comes in through our TVs, our social media, blogs, even sermons, telling us to give in to our impulses and desires. They want us to believe that it's healthy because we deserve to put ourselves first. There is a self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed message out there saying that that's how our, we're to solve our problems rather than pointing us to the Word of God. There is a lot of material that is out there that is cloaked with the word Christian, but it is not truth. And so we must be careful and scrutinize everything that we read or watch or listen to and put it all under the authority of God's Word. We need to guard what we are keeping out and be purposeful at what we are putting in. This is why we spend so much time on Discipline One, because if we do not understand why and how to shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through His Word, if we don't use God's truth we don't use the gospel to, to um, fuel our repentance, to help us to understand how to live um, in holiness, to grow in holiness. What can happen? We can become weak women who can pose a threat to our own households, to our very own church, and to the gospel mission. We, too, can become vulnerable to believing the lies that the world would want us to believe and then pass them right along to the people who are closest to us. So we need to be careful. All right, let's look at number seven, the, how the household can become an obstacle to the gospel. Let's turn to Matthew 10, 37. <clears throat> 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus makes a very strong point here that the gospel in his kingdom is to be first and everything else and everyone else is to be second, including our family. Jesus is instructing us regarding the priority that we're to have. If a person gets saved and their family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, believers are to follow Christ and not family, even while staying in that family, staying in that household, as they display the changes that Christ has made in them, as they love their family and serve them, this passage teaches us that our identity in Christ is greater than our household or our family identity. That is why we can love and serve those closest to us regardless of their reactions and, and the gospel, to the gospel's impact in their life. So how can we know if we're thinking too highly about our own family identity and not highly enough about our identity in Christ? Well, I think one way is if we find ourselves dismissing sin, thinking, well, it's just how I was raised, or that's how our family does it, when God's word is very clear about how we're to live. There is no better way to love those in our household than to keep our affections for Christ first in our hearts, remembering that the gospel enables us to love, to shine the light of Jesus in the midst of our family, even if we're the only believer there. All right, let's turn to Ephesians 5. We're going to look at number 8 on our outline. <clears throat> Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp on the gospel. So we're going to look at another household relationship. We're going to look at marriage. So whether you are married or not, your understanding of biblical marriage is so important. Our culture fights hard to make a mockery of Christian marriage. So it is our responsibility to see the beauty of the gospel portrayed in Christian marriage. So again, we see God's heart for the household in marriage in Ephesians 5. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. So when we think about marriage, we are to think about Christ and the church. We all need to build up, treasure, and support biblical marriage in how we think about marriage and how we talk about it, whether we're married or not. Understanding biblical submission is a beautiful picture of how Christ again and again submitted himself to the will of the Father. Just as a husband is to sub husbands are to submit themselves to the headship of the Lord, and wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. So a wife is to look beyond her husband to Christ. If you are married, your husband is your leader. And when we struggle to submit to our earthly leader, we can still follow him because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. He is sovereign and he is good. And that is where we rest our confidence in submitting to our husbands and where we encourage one another to do the same. Okay, and then verse uh, num number nine on our outline, let's go ahead and look at a New Testament model marriage. So Priscilla and Aquila's marriage is a great New, New Testament model of marriage, and we're going to see that in Acts 18. Mm -hmm. 
Priscilla and Aquila served Paul together, helping to support him through their tent making together. And I just think it's a, a, a great picture to look at because they did ministry together. So in verses 24 through 28, we see that they met Apollos, who had an incomplete view of the gospel because they only knew about John the Baptist. And so together, they were able to help their brother who was deficient in doctrine. And Priscilla was right there with her husband, helping to equip Apollos. Their marriage was well suited to be used for the church. We see them again in Romans 16, 3 through 5. Paul gives thanks for many Christians that he knows. And Priscilla and Aquila are right there among them. He said that they risked their own necks for the gospel. Wow, that was a remarkable marriage and one for us to model and to pray that God would cause our marriage to be used by God as well. So, as we wrap up, what do we see in all of this? We've seen God's inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our homes. We've seen that women, that a woman who loves God places a priority on spiritually influencing her household with her heart for the gospel in Jesus Christ, for her gospel of Jesus. Let me just say that again. We've seen that a woman who loves God places a priority on spiritually influencing her household with her heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen that as a faithful believer in the gospel, we are to bring a gospel aroma to the rest of our household, to guard our hearts and to protect our household, to root out any false thinking, any thinking that could come in and deceive us and negatively influence our, our families. So we need to ask ourselves, what is the spiritual climate of our homes? Have we grasped God's heart for our home, for our homes, for our household relationships? Do we take our roles there seriously? Do we see how much is at stake as we think about the next generation and the reputation of God's word? Our obedience in our homes is essential for exalting God's design and his gospel work. Our homes are to be, and they can be, the perfect showcase for the gospel, where we seek forgiveness, and we extend forgiveness, and we love and we serve those whom God has placed in our home, and those who God who we invite into our home, those who God places there, whether they live there or whether they're invited in. And so we depend on God's grace to us as we learn to trust our trustworthy Savior in our household. And we do that regardless of how others respond. And we keep before us this hope, remembering that the gospel is that powerful to enable us to love those in our household because God first loved us. Now, I think sometimes when we look at what God's word has to say about the home, it may expose regret or failure or sin. But when God exposes sin, it's not a time for us to just get all discouraged and spiral down. When God exposes sin, it is for the, the purpose of restoration with him and with others. That is his grace to us. So as you do your homework this week, I pray that if God exposes sin, that you'll deal with that sin, but that you will be encouraged as you repent from that sin and see God's grace to you as help for you. And that it'll only cause us to plead with God to develop his love in our hearts so that we all will be undeterred worshipers in our home 
as we seek to display the gospel's impact in our home, in our own hearts, and therefore in our homes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so kind to us, so merciful to us, that you would give us your word, that you would show us your heart, the things that are important to you. And Father, thank you that as we have been able to survey your word this morning, we have been able to grasp your heart for the household. Father, thank you that you give us examples of people who have done that well to encourage us, to show us how we can model that for others, even as they have modeled it for us. And Father, thank you that you've even given us examples of those who have not grasped your heart so that we can be warned so that we know what we must guard our hearts against. Father, you have shown us your heart for your household. And if it's important to you, Father, I plead with you that each one of us would be careful to make sure that our hearts are aligned with yours, that we would be as concerned as you are for the household for our household and our impact that we have there, and also that we would encourage one another in their impact that they have in uh, their own household. Father, thank you that even where we see failures in the past, where we see sin and regret, that we always have hope, that your gospel always brings us hope because it provides for us the opportunity to repent and the power to live anew, to be empowered by your Holy Spirit, to live out the gospel in our own families. And so, Father, I pray, particularly in this time, in this culture, where there is such a negative connotation to Christian homes, Father, that our homes would stand in great contrast to that, that we would hold your word high, that we would be so committed in our own hearts to your word, to having your word impact our hearts, that we would have such a great impact in our own homes, Father, that it would be a light to the world as they see your influence through us in our homes, and that many would see the power of your gospel there. So, Father, I pray for each woman here, for her own home, regardless of the season of life that she's in, Father, that you would have a great impact there and use her mightily for your glory. And it's in the name of your Son that we pray, in Jesus' name.